Welcome to 1514, a podcast of the Biblical Counseling Coalition, where we draw from the words of Romans 1514 to encourage all Christians that they are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to counsel one another. I'm your host and director of the Biblical Counseling Coalition, Curtis Solomon. Welcome back to 1514. Thanks again to all of our regular listeners and watchers. Really appreciate the support and encouragement that that provides us. Be sure to share with your friends and family and anybody who might benefit from the content we have here on 1514. Jump online, give us a review, give us a star rating, tell us anything that we're doing well and any ways that we can improve. We really appreciate that feedback and it lets other people know that uh, what they can expect from 1514. Well, today I have a guest with me, Chris Moles. Chris is an ordained minister with the Christian Missionary Alliance and senior pastor at Grace Community Chapel. He's also a certified biblical counselor with ACBC and IABC, and he's a certified group facilitator in domestic violence intervention and prevention, which helps him as a faculty member at the West Virginia Coalition Against Domestic Violence, which is a statewide intervention training program there in West Virginia. Chris is also the founder of PeaceWorks, and he has a BA from Bi- uh, in Bible from Cedarville and an MA in Biblical Counseling from Faith Bible Seminary. Chris, thanks so much for being here with us today. Oh, thanks for having me, Curtis. This is a, a real pleasure. I listen to the podcast, totally on board, and excited to be uh, part of the team. Well, thanks, brother. I really appreciate it. So, Chris, for those who, who aren't familiar with you and your ministry, could you just introduce us to yourself? Sure. So I'm just a uh, country boy from West Virginia. Country is cornbread. And uh, God just in his providence has seen fit to allow me to uh, graciously be part of the biblical counseling movement for for nearly 20 years, uh, serving in small churches. And uh, currently I'm the, the only pastor at a very small church in Eleanor, West Virginia, where uh, I do just about everything. And uh, biblical counseling is a big piece of my involvement in our community and uh, since then, and with a few other things, well, I'm sure we'll talk about involvement with domestic violence prevention and intervention. I've found myself doing more and more uh, things like this and being part of the, the larger biblical counseling team to train the church how to respond a little better to a, a tricky and messy and somewhat overlooked and undermanaged uh, area of ministry, which is helping victims and holding perpetrators accountable. Yeah, yeah, that's actually why we have you here on the podcast today is talk about that aspect of your ministry. Um, I kind of introduced a variety of things that you're involved with, but could you just kind of break it down on a maybe week to week or month to month basis, what your ministry, uh, different ministry roles look like? Sure. So I'm, I'm a full-time pastor, uh, but in part because the church is so small, there's a great deal of freedom. And years ago, uh, my church just released me to just be engaged in the community and so any given week, it'll vary. Uh, usually there's one day a week I'm at a local corrections facility, a day reporting center where I'm teaching. I've been teaching in corrections now for 17 years. The last 12 years, I've been leading groups for men convicted of domestic violence crimes or served with domestic violence protection orders. And then I also lead groups for women who've been convicted of DV crimes. And that's been going on for uh, about 12 years in addition to the ministry work. I counsel uh, usually one day a week. So I meet folks uh, for the community, in the community for free, uh, offer myself as a counselor to community uh, folk. And then I do some coaching programs uh, internationally. That's something that I do charge for, try to reimburse my time from the, from the church with men who are destructive. And I do that usually uh, the same day that I do counseling. So it's a pretty long counseling day. Then there's one day at community corrections. And then about once a month, I'm on the road. 
So, in fact, I'll be, I think, seeing you next week as this being recorded. This is being recorded. I'll be in uh, Charlotte the first part of the week next week and then Texas for my uh, uh, month of April uh, doing a couple of trainings. Will you be at the ABC conference down in Texas? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I'll be, yeah, I'll be part of the domestic violence track, which I'm super excited about. It's going to be uh, eight hours of training specific with myself and a couple other team members. It's going to be a, a really good conference, I think. Yeah, no, I'm really excited about it. I'll be bummed not to be able to sit in on yours because I'll be teaching the PT in the PTSD track. Mm-hmm. But uh, but no, that's exciting. That's great. So one of the <clears throat> the domestic violence thing you said you've been teaching in the corrections field for about 17 years. Mm-hmm. How did you? How did that begin? How did you get started with that? Yeah, it began with prayer. Uh, you know, it, being involved in small ministries and small churches, uh, you don't have a tremendous amount of resources. In fact. You know, I'm, I'm our church's biggest budget item, uh, just trying to meet payroll and uh, housing allowance and such every year is tricky. And so in order to, uh, to do ministry, you've got to be creative. You can't just simply build things. I mean, we're, we're not the church that has the big programs that people are attracted to. And so I was praying that the Lord would open up doors for ministry. And in that season of life, a former state trooper uh, pulled up and said, hey, so-and-so told me you're the guy I should talk to. I, I need a board member. And uh, I began with juvenile crime. And so I sat on the board for juvenile crime, have absolutely no background in criminal, criminal justice or interest. In fact, the funny thing is, theologically, I'm, I'm very Anabaptist. And so the fact that I'm working at all with state agencies is weird. And uh, I'm about <laughs> as high up the ladder as I can go um, you know, in, in the government, being an educator and a contractor. So uh, that was just phenomenal. Uh, at that point, they needed a counselor, and they saw on my resume I had counseling experience. They had no clue what NANC was, uh, and I wasn't going to tell them. So I ended up being the uh, juvenile counselor for a couple of years, too, working with uh, parents and teens in the criminal justice system. One thing led to another. I kept uh, getting asked to do more and more trainings, and now I'm thoroughly entrenched as one of the teachers uh, within our uh, probation department. Well, that's that's fantastic that they actually came came to you looking for help and and through the help that they received obviously they they liked that well I, let's jump ahead in that and my questions were not in that order but that's, that's the way fine. these things go sometimes uh you were they came to you looking for that it when and as you said being really anabaptist not <laughs> seeking to be involved in the government um how do you how do you navigate those those paths, what would you say to somebody else or other churches if the state came knocking at their door looking for help? A lot of times we are kind of averse to that in the church. How did you get involved with the, I mean, obviously you showed us how you got involved, but how did you navigate those waters? What tips would you give? So there, I mean, there's some theological positions that I hold that, that are mine. I, I don't try to layer those on people. So there's been over the last you know, nearly 20 years, people have asked me if I'd run for magistrate or if I would take certain positions in, in probation or what have you. And those are really outside of my realm. I, I personally couldn't be law enforcement. I personally couldn't serve as a magistrate. So like I say, I'm about as high up as I'm willing to go. But I really view it as a Romans 12, Romans 13 type of marriage, which you know, if I'm, you know, and as I interpret uh, Romans 12 and 13, I think Paul is calling the church to live at peace with everyone as much as possible, as much as we can. And then Romans 13 is part of that peaceful living that, you know, God gave uh, at that time Nero uh, mm-hmm. the sword. And at our time, we're at a much more kinder 
a gentler sword, as it were, with the government. And so I look at it that way. I, I don't engage in anything punitive. I don't feel like that's my role. Uh, God gave the government the sword, and he gave us as Christians the cross. And so I'm very happy to work in rehabilitative aspects, transformative um, aspects, because the courts, yeah, they can issue the punitive things. They could issue the punishment, um, but they can't bring about transfer, transformation. The sword never changed the heart. It only compels behavior. So I'm happy to see that as my role. Um, and, you know, if there's ever a problem, they can always fire me. That's, that's just part of the deal. I understand that and going in. So, uh, some of the guys will see our class as punishment because they're sentenced to it, but I don't view myself as an executioner. I view myself Mm -hmm. as an educator, uh, participating, uh, alongside the government, not in competition or certainly not in a role that would be authoritative in any way. Yeah. So uh, particularly with biblical counselors, if you're to get involved with the with the government in any way, shape or form, it's going to be kind of like what you're talking about. Somebody coming to you saying, Hey, I hear you do counseling. Would you be open to to helping us? And I could see that coming about. I know some people serve as chaplains for their police department or mm-hmm. just, um, you know, people who are coming to crimes, crime scene counselors really to, to minister to families and other stuff like that. Do you, you didn't approach that. You didn't seek that out for yourself. It was brought to you. Um, do you think it's a, a, a viable or good thing that people should pursue? Uh, sure. sure. I, I would have no problem with, for instance, we, uh, some of the counselors that I train here locally through our uh, biblical counseling center have been approached uh, about crisis intervention care. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're totally thrilled to be part of chaplaincy training and to help people who are just going to be in crisis and in uh, local scenes. That's not uh, foreign to us in West Virginia. Um, you know, as far as uh, flash flooding, uh, the mine disasters that we've had over the years and the least recent water crisis, we, we had a poisoned, you know, people out 350,000 people without water for a good season a couple years ago. So there are cases in which training people in that setting are great to work alongside fire departments, police departments, and so on. I'm totally thrilled when folks want to get engaged. In, in fact, our stop team, our domestic violence task force, is made up of a great deal of believers. Uh, while they engage the government at different levels than I personally would, you know, like my good friend Tony, who's a police officer, um, I wouldn't be in that role, but he functions well in that role. And I totally approve, approve of that from his perspective. So it's a, it's, there's a lot of good opportunities there yeah, yeah. alongside government. That's fantastic. Do you ever feel handicapped in what you can say or what you can do in those roles? Yeah, sometimes. I think you just got to be aware of what what your position is and what's expected of you. So for me, early on in the process, I had a supervisor uh, say to me, Chris, um, we need to be really uh, patient with you. I think we need to just be really open and upfront. If you were a mental health professional, in his, his opinion, we'd want you to speak about that. If you were a police officer, we'd want you to talk about law enforcement. So it would be unfair of us to say that you shouldn't speak about spiritual matters. You are Mm -hmm. a pastor. That's your wheelhouse. If guys ask questions, you should be free to answer them and speak from your experiences. That's that's a rarity. A lot of folks in the culture really don't want that to take place. But I think that just shows, you know, my my supervisor at that point, his um, real understanding of his position and the fact that that's, even though he's a liberal, as you would call that, right? Mm -hmm. That's a proper viewing of that, that everyone is free 
in that regard. So I really appreciate that from him. And we do, we talk about uh, Jesus. We have uh, laid out Ephesians 5. It just kind of depends on whether the guys want to go there. And I'm obviously happy to go there. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. It's a good, good word. So the tagline on your website, you have your own website, chrismoles.org, where people can go and find out more about your ministry, hook into your podcast, other things like that. Your tagline there is reducing violence against women by addressing the hearts of men. And I want to break that apart a little bit. Um, what, what you mentioned a few, but what are the practical outlets of that ministry? You said you do some group coaching. What are the, how does it actually flush out? Yeah. So, uh, you know, a lot of this is really organic. It just comes out of the need. And, uh, so the first thing is awareness. I think the primary role that I have right now is to kind of beat the drum and sound the horn and, and raise awareness. So traveling and speaking, I'm on the road, like I said, about once a month. Um, the blog and uh, we also do a weekly podcast are really designed to introduce the church to the topic of uh, addressing domestic violence from a gospel-centered biblical counseling perspective. Uh, the church has functioned poorly in this area. I really believe we have a lot of failure, uh, unfortunately, and I think we can do a much better job. So awareness is the first. Uh, number two is hope. I really want to be a voice of hope. There's a lot of folks in the work that are pretty disparaging, and uh, I don't want to be that. I, I really want to be positive in my belief and view of the gospel, that the gospel transforms. And so I don't want to be misunderstood. There's a lot of problems. It's really messy. But first of all, I want to be a voice of hope to victims who hear a pastor speaking about this and speaking about it well, because uh, I believe it was a study by the Rafe Project said that 95% of Christian victims said they'd never heard the word abuse mentioned from the pulpit. Hmm. So it's such an under-talked-about uh, topic. It's such a um, poorly handled issue that I want to give victims hope by and survivors hope by hearing a pastor talk about it. And then, two, I want to be a voice of hope for perpetrators that change is possible and necessary, that you either change or you experience the consequences, that the riding the fence uh, days should be over that enough is enough. And we've certainly seen in the church men who've um, been let loose for 20, 30 years until accountability comes. And really, we really need to put a pin in that, nip that, the, that in the bud and, and see transformation in that area. So I, I think that's hopeful. I think the fact that, you know, if we're preaching that perpetrators uh, have to be held accountable and you either, you either change or you suffer the consequences is a hopeful thing. Yeah. And the fact that there is hope for change, I think that's yeah. really great. And the fact that you're ministering, not just to the, your, your ministry seems to be primarily to the perpetrators actually too. And not, uh, not that you're ignoring the victims, but just the way that the Lord's called you and, and equipped and given you the opportunity it's to the people who are committing the violence. Right. Yeah. So that's great. Um, <clears throat> so what do you do? What do you do? What are some of the tools that you do to address the hearts of these men who are acting out violently. So uh, one of the things that you want to do, it's really interesting. When I first got involved in batterer intervention, which has been driven uh, primarily by feminism, um, that model, hmm. uh, humanistic feminism, if you could call it that, um, through shelters, domestic violence workers, responders, great people, mostly women that I've learned a tremendous amount from, uh, very few are believers. And so it's quite a unique opportunity. But that role of batterer intervention, actually working with men in particular who are abusive, uh, was so closely related to what I was already doing in biblical counseling. It was astounding. The, the biggest difference was what, um, 
what we were calling them to. For instance, I, I was trained in a secular model that said beliefs are the core issue, that behavior flows from beliefs. Mm-hmm. And the, the goal is to really help men evaluate and self-reflect on their beliefs. Well, that was great for me. I mean, I'd already been in biblical counseling for years at that point. The dilemma was, you know, my friends on the secular side would say, now you can't tell them what to believe. They have to come <laughs> to those conclusions themselves. So, you know, I, you know my, my theology is going to say something a little bit different. I'm happy to tell you what to believe because I don't think it's going to grow out of, you know, yourself. What's coming out of you is yeah. a problem. Um, but that model just really fit me well. So high accountability, high responsibility, focusing on beliefs, motives. Uh, in fact, our key tool in the secular model is to highlight actions, intents, beliefs are the three things that you do first. I'm, and I'm like, that fits my model perfectly as a biblical counselor. So it's been a fairly seamless transition. And even with my secular friends, because I, I get invited sometimes to speak at secular trainings to talk about the integration of faith into their model. And I talk about uh, distinguishing orthodoxy and orthopraxy, you know, practical theology as it plays out for the Christian, tremendously uh, well-received among most of my peers on the secular side who... Uh, maybe would not see the benefit of giving people the beliefs, but from my perspective uh, and a Christian perspective, see that, yeah, that makes sense. If you're a Christian, you should call people to account when they don't behave like a Christian. Yeah. So, so you're digging into and uprooting these beliefs, these heart issues and trying to replace them, you know, putting on the, the, person of Christ and the right thing you're telling what to believe. Are there certain trends or patterns that you're finding that, that are common among these men who are acting out violently? Yeah. Pride and entitlement really almost always rest at the heart of violence. So I often say that every violent person is prideful, even though every prideful person is not violent. What you tend to find is a sense of rights versus responsibility. This plays a lot into our circles with complementarity, because you'll have guys who are misusing scripture yeah. to justify an entitlement. I have a right to a wife who submits. I have a right to a wife who is sexually available. I have a right rather than from a Christ, uh, I think a Christ centered perspective, I have a responsibility to care, a responsibility mm-hmm. to love, a responsibility to be intentional. And so moving from entitlement to service is a big part of the put off and put on as is pride to humility. And I often tell my guys, because uh, I think they're in a dangerous situation with this level of pride. And I'll say, look, you can either choose to be humble or you can wait to be humiliated. Hmm. It will come. One of the two. God's going to get his. And so I'm urging you, please choose humi- humility now, hmm. right? Submit yourself to authority. Submit yourself to the leadership that's come around you before you experience humiliation and loss, um, you know, at the hands of your own choices. So why, why uh, pride, entitlement, mm-hmm. those things, kind of like you said, and violent people are always prideful, but not all prideful people are violent. Why, why do they choose to act out violently rather than manifesting that pride, that entitlement in some mm-hmm. other way, like other people? Do? Oh, they do. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, domestic abuse will escalate. So when I even, even when I use the word violence, uh, and maybe this comes back to that theological discussion, I see it as um, the use of force or potential use of force uh, based on power that is coercive. So the idea here is um, violent men, uh, domestic violence, entails so much more than physical assault. Mm. So physical and sexual assault might be the top of the pyramid, the most expressive form. Um, But 
there's always the fear and the threat of physical force in things like excessive name-calling, isolation, manipulation, minimization, denial, blame, tactics that men will use that are highly sinful that might not be illegal, but are still within our wheelhouse. That's one of the rubs I have with uh, pastor friends who want to know the legal definitions uh, as if they're law enforcement. Going back to Romans 12, Romans 13, we have uh, have so much more of a broader view of domestic abuse because it's sinful, even if it's not physical. And so really identifying those tactics, what in the book, uh, my book, I call uh, the fruit on the tree. We use the Luke six model. The fruit on the tree involves so much more than physical violence. And so, yeah, uh, prideful, you know, violent people are prideful, but at the same time, those other manifestations will be there. And that's why it's important to do proper data gathering, to really be patient with your information and to not view domestic abuse as an incident, but a pattern. And that's one of those learning, those skill building things that uh, takes some a while for biblical counselors to learn. I think we're uniquely positioned to do this work, but we have to unlearn a few things and then relearn a few more things so that we can tackle the issue well, because it is so upside down from what we're used to dealing with. So what are, what are some of those things that we need to unlearn that we... Yeah, and this is, this is something that biblical counseling, we know we need to do this anyway, but with this work, it's so essential. And that is to wait, to continue to ask good questions. I, I really think, especially as I'm training counselors, just in generalist uh, type of counseling for biblical counseling, I find a tendency to rush ahead to solve mm-hmm. a problem rather than gather the information. And one of the two of the ways I put it is, is one, you have to see the whole train. You know, here in West Virginia, uh, we have trains, but we don't get to see the entire train moving because there's so many obstructions, mm. right? There's mountains and valleys and turns. And so we see the engine, then we see the coal car, and then we see another coal car, and then we see the rear end of it, right? Uh, it's important that we keep gathering the data to see the whole train because, especially with abusive men, if we address one incident, um, they are usually more than happy to help us help them with that one mm. incident. Anger management or uh, sobriety, if I can get uh, redemption from this substance abuse problem or the pornography issue or whatever one issue, it keeps me distracted and disengaged from the pattern of coercive control over here. Mm. So it's important to get the whole train. The other thing I, I say is if you hear, hear hoofsteps outside, you should think horse, not zebra. <laughs> um, but really in this line of work, you should really turn the light on to see if there's stripes. I mean, you should really do the work to make sure you're not dealing with a zebra because you, you work with a zebra completely different than a horse. And the temptation is, as biblical counselors, you know, we're wrangling horses 90% of the time. And then a zebra walks in, it requires a totally different mindset. So what are some of those things that we could look for? Um, obviously domestic violence, secrecy, is is huge because uh, the the perpetrator is threatening more violence if somebody comes out and oftentimes the the victim doesn't want to be um, there's a lot of loss that could come involved if oh, they yeah. they tell so what are some of the things we can look for to to spot uh, that this might be occurring in relationships that we see uh, control uh, is a big one uh, isolation. Um, little things like demands, uh, expectations that seem unreasonable, uh, especially if you're in a counseling or discipling relationship, I would really press a little bit on that. 
I had an advocate friend of mine uh, early in my process. She was a big help to me. She's just a brilliant advocate uh, for victims. And she said to me one time, Chris, everyone's lying to you. And what she meant by that was no one I was working with was giving me the full story. Mm. Um, the victim didn't know if she could trust me. The perpetrator was willfully trying to deceive me. Uh, both of them were self-deceived. For instance, uh, perpetrators often perceive themselves as victims. They mm. present themselves as such that if she would just do this, then I would not have to do this. And then victims often believe that as they've also take a great deal of guilt. I, I've said the biggest difference in this work that really surprised me, Curtis, was when I'm working with a, a man, for instance, and I, I don't think it's a men and women thing as much as it is a power and a, a oppressed type of thing. But when I'm working with a man who is being confronted on this, he will tend to deny most everything. Uh, it takes a lot of work to wrestle that out of him. However, when I'm working with a victim, she will, she will take claim to nearly everything. Hmm. And uh, it, it's so easy if you're not engaged, if you're not familiar with it. And I think it's just kind of learning to speak the language. If you're not culturally involved in it, it is so easy for us as biblical counselors to take them at their word and at the surface level and say, well, wow, she really is a problem and he's really trying hard. And that is the most typical response within the movement hmm. uh, that I have found is that victims are often blamed and perpetrators supported when um, the exact opposite is the case, that we need to be digging a little bit more deeper, we'll find kind of the treacherous nature of the whole thing. Yeah, so that's good. So look for the power, the manipulation, the control, all those kind of things. So if you're if we're going through counseling, data gathering, and we realize we're dealing with a zebra and not a horse, mm -hmm. what are some things that we need to be aware of and, and to do to address the, the zebra issues? Yeah, first thing is redefine the counseling relationship. Uh, for us as biblical counselors, most of the time, these red flags will display themselves in marriage counseling. Uh, this is one of those issues that I think still I'm getting some heat from the biblical counseling movement uh, as being part of my, my, you know, being my tribe. But there's more uh, folks coming along, seeing the benefit of this. If this uh, disclosure or awareness begins to happen in marriage counseling, redefine the, re the counseling relationship. Uh, marriage counseling is the last thing that should be happening. Uh, because once we identify the zebronic characteristics, as it were, the, the heart of abuse, once that begins to, those red flags, I recommend we separate. It doesn't have to be overt. You don't have to say, I think you're an abuser. We're going to separate. It could be, I would like to meet separately for the next few weeks just to, to fill out and gather a little bit more data. And I would like you, Sally, to meet with, uh, with Sarah. And I would like you, Jimmy, to meet with Curtis. And we're just going to take a different parallel tracks to work on some individual things. That way we can gather a little bit more information because in marriage counseling, if uh, an abuser is in a marriage counseling situation, they tend to drive the sessions. Mm -hmm. And then also they could use threats, either overt or covert threats to manipulate their partner. And then uh, also they could try to collude with the counselor. It's a very dangerous time. Uh, when those disclosures come. The other thing that I, I would say, redefining the counseling relationship, if you're working with a lady in particular and a disclosure is made an individual session, uh, letting her drive the next steps a little bit, not jumping the gun, uh, as it were, not making reports that are going to put her in more danger or not um, doing anything that's going to put her at risk. 
She needs to know that you support her and that you're there to be a resource. And that's a long conversation, but one that I think biblical counselors need to grow in our understanding. How do we be supportive without putting her in uh, at a safety risk? Well, if she, if you give her the driver's seat and um, to make the next few steps, what are some steps that you, you know, maybe you give her the, the, the controls, but you want to put some guiding yeah. Guide rails along the, along the road for her to drive down. What are some things that she should be thinking about or considering doing in the next few steps? If something comes out that she is in a, in a domestic violence situation. Yeah. So the counselor should be prepared to do uh, at least some level of what we would call a DLAG, a, a dangerousness and lethality assessment. Uh, we should be processing either with the, the victim or within our own head, uh, the potential danger that's in front of us. Right. So looking for warning signs, uh, again, we don't have time for all of it, but are there even thinking through, are there weapons present in the home? Uh, has strangulation been part mm-hmm. of, of this in the past? Uh, what are there any mistreatment of the pets or the kids or anything that I would have to report under the, the legal aspects of my state? Those type of things are the, from the counselor's perspective, from the victim's perspective, some of the guardrails and boundaries and things I want to set up are things like uh, open and honest dialogue. So I want to make sure that she has someone that she can contact at a moment's notice. Safety planning is something I would like to do. Uh, it can be a simple safety plan as to what's going to happen the next time Johnny does this, or it could be a very elaborate safety plan that includes how am I going to get resources? Where am I going to stay if I feel like I have to leave, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it's, yeah, there's a whole lot more we could definitely talk about along those lines. So, um, and man, we are, we have cruised along with our time. Yeah. I think what I'll do at this point, there's a lot of other questions I had, and I think there's a lot more you have to say, but we can't get through it all in a half hour podcast. So I would really just encourage you, if you're listening or watching, uh, to check out Chris's website, get his book, also look for other opportunities where he is going to be training. I know you were at IBCD's Institute last mm-hmm. summer. It'll be at the ACBC conference this this uh, spring. So look for the audio or, or video of those to come out as well and definitely get yourself more equipped. It's hey, one, of- one thing, Curtis, I yeah. think could be really helpful and it's a shameless plug, but in February, we launched PeaceWorks University, which is a subscription-based membership site. I just wasn't able to keep up with the consulting calls mm-hmm. and the requests I was getting. And so in February, we launched a uh, membership site that has all of my... Um, Uh, material, about 30 hours of video material. Every month, I give brand new masterclasses uh, with experts in the field. This month is actually a dangerousness and lethality assessment course with a Christian law enforcement officer. Uh, I do live Q&A with my group every month on our private Facebook group. Right now, we're just under 50 members in a little over a month, and it is a very affordable uh, training opportunity to get connected with me and the material. And people can find out about that at, at the website, but PeaceWorks University has exceeded my expectations. And I think it's going to be a great resource for biblical counselors. Well, absolutely. That's fantastic to know. And, and, uh, definitely want to encourage everybody to check that out. The reality is, is we're people often say 90% of the counseling we do is marriage counseling. And I don't know the exact percentages, but I'm sure there's a a chunk of that that's going to open our eyes, especially if we're looking for it to see that this issue is going on. And unfortunately seems to be more on the rise than on the decline. So Chris, thanks so much for your work that you're doing there. And thanks for being with us today. Um, 
I do reserve the last couple of minutes for a segment we call two minute favorites. So which we'll, we'll do that. And then I'll just uh, thank you again for being here. Yeah. You ready? You ready for this? Sure. Let's give it a shot. I just, I think the, I listened to the new Heisers uh, podcast and I think they prepared. So my plan is to beat the, my whole plan is to beat the new Heisers. I'm going to actually be with them Monday and Tuesday. So Oh yeah. Agenda declared everyone. I'm trying to beat. (laughs) All right. Well, I will, I will, we will check in with them and see, see uh, if you guys get into a fight over this. (laughs) All right. Well, here we go. Uh, What's your favorite food? I love Ethiopian food. All right. What's your favorite gift you've ever received? In the eighties, my brother and I got an Atari 2600 video game. It was amazing. Favorite gift ever given? Probably my wife's engagement ring. All right. Favorite word? It's peace. Least favorite word? Hate. Favorite book in the Bible? Uh, anything by Luke. So that narrows it down to two. All right. Uh, <laughs> favorite extra biblical book? I still every year read when people are big and God is small. Hmm. Favorite color? Uh, green. Favorite sport? Basketball. Favorite sports team? Anything with the uh, West Virginia University Mountaineers. All right. Favorite Bible verse? Ephesians 2.10. We're God's workmanship. All right. Favorite ice cream flavor? Cookie dough. Favorite candy? Zero bars. Hands down. Favorite quote? Yeah, there's a lot. Lately, it's been Tozer. Um, He said, to be right with God has often meant to be in trouble with men. Hmm. Favorite restaurant? Anyone you want to take me to. <laughs> <laughs> Favorite beverage? Coffee. Uh, if you had one superpower to choose, which one would you choose? Invisibility. All right. Favorite movie? Princess Bride. Favorite job you've ever had, excluding your current one? You know, I coached middle school basketball this year, and it was a trial but it was a load of fun (laughs) all right favorite animal probably a a tiger a bengal tiger uh what's if your mom were to describe you in one word what word would she use (sighs) she would probably say baby my baby let's not go there (laughs) all right well that's our timer i think you i think you uh got through the list and yeah well done well done very few have answered more than that Actually, I don't know if anybody's answered more than that. So good job. Take that. Well, Chris, thanks so much again for your ministry. Uh, There's a lot more to be learned there. So keep up the good work. We really appreciate it. And thanks for being here with us today. Absolutely. My my pleasure, Curtis. Uh, Keep up the good work there at the coalition. We absolutely love the ministry and the mission of the Biblical Counseling Coalition. So glad to be a help any way we can. The interview that you just listened to today that I had the chance to do with Chris Moles reminded me of the fact that the time that we have together on 1514 is a small window into a much broader ministry that many of the people we interview are involved in. And it highlighted the fact that our goal is not to fully equip you to address every single issue that is discussed on the podcast of 1514, but really to open your eyes to what God is doing in different avenues, different ministries, different opportunities, both to be an encouragement to you of what God is doing broadly across the world, but also to pique your interest and and expose you to various things you might consider learning more about. Especially with the issue of domestic violence, I just want to remind you that what we talked about today does not fully address and equip 
people to deal with all of the issues related to that topic. So if you find yourself in a situation where you're dealing with somebody in that situation, I'd encourage you to reach out to Chris Moles or others and be, become more aware of the different resources and thoughts that can help address that issue. Thanks again for listening. Hope this was a blessing and I hope our future episodes are a blessing to you as well. Thank you for listening to today's episode of 1514. If you'd like to know more about the Biblical Counseling Coalition, please visit our website at biblicalcc.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at biblicalcc or find us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash biblicalcounselingcoalition. Thanks again for listening.